Have you ever asked yourself what kind of tools could be helpful to prevent and identify fraudulent actions or non-compliant behavior? If so, in this episode you will receive a first tool in form of a hypothesis at hand, which I highly appreciate and after so many years into that business, I use on a daily basis, sometimes even unconsciously. I talk about the drivers of fraud and where they come from. It is definitely not a new art at all. Good to have you here. Corporate integrity, fraud, non-compliance and cybersecurity. Would you like to understand the root causes, detect threats and take measurements to protect the most precious assets? As a leader, You need to be prepared and stay actionable in the event of an incident. Sonia Sternemann talks in her podcast, The Human Factor, Corporate Integrity Matters. To leaders and entrepreneurs who want to have impact, foster corporate integrity, and act as role models. As an international expert for corporate governance and integrity, entrepreneur, and independent board member, she knows the challenges. Let her inspire you. Welcome back to this new episode of the podcast, The Human Factor, Corporate Integrity Matters. You might be an integrity enthusiast, game changer, business leader, or on your way there. I'm your mentor when it comes to corporate integrity and ethical leadership with impact. Founder of Corporate Integrity Concepts and the Corporate Integrity Academy. With a vision to protect and secure assets, reputation, actionability, yours and the one of your organization. Why? because corporate integrity matters. Let us make the world a place of corporate integrity and ethical leadership. And now let's dive into the question of what drives fraud. I'm convinced that it is essential to understand the different fraud drivers when you are overseeing processes, businesses and people. Methodologies, tools and approaches support us here and are part or become part of a wider framework in our organization and for yourself. As mentioned at the very beginning, I regularly apply the deeper understanding of fraud drivers during my work. No matter whether I do that in my role as a board member, a risk owner, an entrepreneur or investigator. The ability to implement that know-how of these drivers and also practice it in the different fields of responsibility enables you to faster identify potential risks. The last time I was confronted with that topic from a client's side is a few days ago, when we discussed about the inherent risk of risk owners which seems to be lacking ownership and how to approach such, such circumstances. You see, there are many different situations the fraud drivers play a key component and become a real leadership topic. For most of us, fraud is still a taboo topic which is not discussed in the public, especially if it affects or affected the organization we work for. We do not want to confess that we had betrayers in our round, that we made mistakes when we hired them, and that we trusted the wrong people. Fraudulent behavior is as old as, old as human being, and it could happen in all kinds of organizations. 
And the topic I'm outlining today in this episode affects everybody, not only the board or management team. And here I would like also to mention that whenever you think about training your team to sensitize for different topics, please be aware of the fact that the more they know about for example, fraud, white-collar crime, non-compliance, the better your organization becomes protected. It doesn't make sense if you only train your board or your management team. You also need to train your employees. To give you the right frame, I have to go back in time. By then, another term was far more popular than fraud, the term white-collar crime. The criminologist Edwin Sutherland defined the term as following. Crime committed by a person of respectability in high social status in the course of his occupation. With this definition, the term overlaps with that of economic or corporate crime because the opportunity to commit economic crime such as insider trading, money laundering, accounting fraud, corruption, embezzlement, falsification, documents, etc., is for higher-ranking employees much more comprehensive than for employees at lower hierarchical levels. Why? Because you have different access to commit certain fraud patterns. This access to commit is also known as opportunity. For Sutherland, therefore, the driver opportunity was decisive for his definition of the term white-collar crime. Just to clarify, that driver does not specify whether the attackers are inside, internal fraud, or outside, external fraud of the organization with which it has to contractual relationships. Much of the existing literature on the scientific debate is strongly based on the work of Edwin Sutherland. As for, as for the importance of Freud in psychoanalysis, Sutherland enjoys for himself in the field of white-collar crime, in particular also through the coining of the term white-collar crime. Since its inception, the term has been used to describe virtually any form of white-collar crime committed from an office building or desk, and especially these days, also in our virtual territory of cyber. I'm now going to tell you more about where the term white-collar crime is coming from. So far, we only know why it is the first driver of fraud. For me, it is a subtle difference between white-collar crime and blue-collar crime. The term blue-collar or originates from the 1920s and refers to the work clothing of the American factory workers. The workers were exposed to heavily pollution and worked dark clothes, dark clothes for this reason, to visually minimize stains. Many of them also wore uniforms or shirts, which were normally blue, hence the derivation to blue collar. The so-called blue collar workers were caretakers, instruction workers, machine fitters or production workers. Most were paid low hourly rates. The pay depends on the specific occupational category as well as the individual skills and abilities of the employee. In contrast, white-collar workers were rewarded for their intellectual work and paid much higher. The manual work was excluded to a minimum. The white-collar workers mostly sat in an office and for this reason could wear white shirts and white 
shirt sleeves, the collars, without worrying about them getting dirty. Typical white-collar occupations were accountants, lawyers, doctors and managers. This imbalance of power exists still, even if the terms as such are not longer actively used. For the categorization and illustration of offenses related to economic crime and non-compliance, however, they are still relevant. We all must be careful how we use the term blue-collar crime, as it is not a formal official standalone classification of offenses, but an informal term. The blue-collar crime is used to describe offenses that are primarily committed by individuals who are committed by persons who move in or come from a lower social class. Blue-collar workers with occupational classifications described above have no or very limited access to the same resources in the form of skills and information as the white-collar workers do have. So remember, access and opportunity was the first driver of fraud. Having said that, white-collar workers do have much more access and therefore opportunity. For this reason, blue-collar workers are more likely that they will commit crimes that are more immediate and personal in nature, such as rob robbery, than that long pre-planned complex acts would be recommitted. This is not to say, however, that white-collar workers do not commit blue-collar crimes, but that most perpetrators of these crimes pattern come from lower social classes. Due to occupational status, blue-collar workers generally have less access and fewer opportunities to commit acts such as embezzlement, insider trading, interest rate manipulation or bribery. These offenses require a certain level of a status or hierarchical power within the organization, which is granted exclusively to white-collar employees. White-collar offenses, however, are not committed by the elite, elite of society only, but rather are committed independence and from the perspective of, of opportunity. This distinction of access and opportunity is also reflected in the first fraud driver mentioned by Sutherland in the earlier introduction. And of course, we will also talk about the, the so-called fraud triangle, which combines all the three underlying drivers of white-collar crime. First, we go back to Mr. Sutherland. Sutherland was convinced that criminal behavior is based on interpersonal interaction with other people. In his later years of research, Sutherland developed the theory of differentiated association, which is still the most frequently applied theory for white-collar crime behavior today. Just in the 1930s, it replaced the widespread assumption among criminologists that criminal behavior was genetically determined and heritable over generations. Sutherland worked with the hypothesis that crime could not occur with, without contribution from other individuals and that learning criminal behavior mainly takes place in a close, familiar circle. This learning process of criminal behavior encompasses several dimensions. On one hand, the techniques and methods, and on the other hand, the attitude. So the inner attitude, rationalization, justification, driver and motives underlying a criminal personality. 
that the current state of knowledge in the 21st century, based on the experience and countless practical cases in the context of prevention, detection and reaction to white collar crime in national, international and global companies and organizations, it becomes obvious in which way Sutherland's theory of differential association on perpetration in the field of white collar crime and non-compliance is applicable. The proverb, the fish thinks from the head, implies the lift behavior of the role model and the rub-off on the entire workforce. This applies into both directions. Companies that have been successful for decades often have a corporate governance that is truly pre-lift and based on ethical principles and values of integrity. But this was not the end. Sutherland's research was taken up and continued by one of his students, Donald Cressy, who has decided not to pursue a different line of research than his professor in the field of criminology for his dissertation. Away from the highest level of responsibility of a company and organization, he focused largely on the so-called embezzlers. The fraud drivers that led these individuals to act fascinated Cressy. So does it to me. His final hypothesis was that trusted persons become trust violators when they conceive of themselves as having a financial problem which is not shareable. So they couldn't talk to anybody about it. And are aware this problem can be secretly resolved by violating of the position of financial trust they have due to them, um, their profession and are able to apply their own code of conduct in that situation verbalizations which enable them to adjust their conceptions of themselves as trusted person with their conceptions of themselves as users of the entrusted funds or property. So this was said by Mr. Cressy. You will also find this specific hypothesis in the show notes afterwards. Based on his analysis and final hypothesis, he developed the method of the so-called fraud triangle. And here we are now with the three drivers of fraud. The hypothesis is based on three main sub-areas, which we already heard before, but I would like to summarize it in a more simple way for you. So first we have the opportunity to do so, we have the access. Second, we have a motive, a pressure, a pain point of that person. We heard it with an example of the financial problem, but there are also many others. And the third one is just the rationalization. When the person puts his own value system against the pressure and the opportunity. These three manifestations from the legs of Cressy's fraud triangle will also support us in further episodes of this podcast. As already mentioned, this fraud triangle has been developed and refined over the years. However, the simplicity of these three manifestations allows us a quick and reliable analysis of possible offender profiles for hypothesis work for example, during an investigation, also under all altered conditions, for example, with new risks in the area of cybercrime. 
Therefore, I would like you to use the take-home assignments of this episode to practice the underlying hypothesis of the fraud triangle about the trusted person we heard before, the financial problem, and the value system of that person. Pick one of the latest news and identify these three key drivers. You will immediately see the interconnections of the hypothesis. With that take-home assignment, I would like to come to an end for that for today because I'm sure that you will all have success stories practicing the hypothesis within the next few days. And I promise we will also talk about the fraud triangle in more detail in one of the next episodes. This was episode number five of The Human Factor, Corporate Integrity Matters. Following the belief, corporate integrity secures and empowers individuals and organizations. Would you like to learn more, meet peers and getting qualified? So visit the website Corporate Integrity Concepts or Corporate Integrity Academy. Or do you think this podcast could be interesting for someone you know? Sharing is caring and we are always happy to welcome your peers to our community. And if you like this episode, subscribe and don't miss any of the future ones. The show notes are, of course, enriched with relevant information and your connection via any of the social media channels is highly appreciated and will be answered. Promised. And please do not forget, topics of your interest or interview partners are highly welcome. Just send me a note on any of the channels you know. That's it from my side. I thank you for listening. My name is Sonja Stiernimon and I'm your host. Stay curious, actionable and a role model. Take care and goodbye.